Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. Then I asked him if he had ever heard of organized effort, to which he replied, What do you mean by organized effort? I informed him that I had reference to the direction of his efforts in such a manner that he would enroll from five to ten students with the same amount of effort that he had been putting into the enrollment, of one or of none. He said he was willing to be shown, so I gave him instructions to arrange for me to speak before the employees of one of the local department stores. He made the appointment and I delivered the address. In my talk I outlined a plan through which the employees could not only increase their ability so that they could earn more money in their present positions, but it also offered them an opportunity to prepare themselves for greater responsibilities and better positions. Following my talk, which of course was designed for that purpose, my friend enrolled eight of those employees for night courses in the commercial school which he represented. The following night he booked me for a similar address before the employees of a laundry, and following the address he enrolled three more students, two of them young women who worked over the washing machines at the hardest sort of labor. Two days later he booked me for an address before the employees of one of the local banks, and following the address he enrolled four more students, making a total of 15 students, and the entire time consumed was not more than six hours, including the time required for the delivery of the addresses and the enrollment of the students. My friend's commission on the transactions was a little over $400. These places of employment were within 15 minutes walk of this man's place of business, but he had never thought of looking there for business. Neither had he ever thought of allying himself with a speaker who could assist him in group selling. That man now owns a splendid commercial school of his own, and I am informed that his net income last year was over $10,000. No opportunities come your way, perhaps they. Fear no man, hate no man, wish no one misfortune, and more than likely you will have plenty of friends. Come but you do not see them. Perhaps you will see them in the future as you are preparing yourself, through the aid of this reading course on the law of success, so that you can recognize an opportunity when you see it. The sixth lesson of this course is on the subject of imagination, which was the chief factor that entered into the transaction that I have just related. Imagination, plus a definite plan, plus self-confidence, plus action, or the main factors that entered into this transaction. You now know how to use all of these, and before you shall have finished this lesson you will understand how to direct these factors through self-control. Now let us examine the scope of meaning of the term self-control, as it is used in connection with this course, by describing the general conduct of a person who possesses it. A person with well-developed self-control does not indulge in hatred, envy, jealousy, fear, revenge, or any similar destructive emotions. A person with well-developed self-control does not go into ecstasies or become ungovernably enthusiastic over anything or anybody. Greed and selfishness and self-approval beyond the point of accurate self-analysis and appreciation of one's actual merits, indicate lack of self-control in one of its most dangerous forms. Self-confidence is one of the important essentials of success, but when this faculty is developed beyond the point of reason it becomes very dangerous. Self-sacrifice is a commendable quality, but when it is carried to extremes, it, also, becomes one of the dangerous forms of lack of self-control. You owe it to yourself not to permit your emotions to place your happiness in the keeping of another person. Love is essential for happiness, but the person who loves so deeply that his or her happiness is placed entirely in the hands of another, resembles the little lamb who crept into the den of the nice, gentle little wolf and begged to be permitted to lie down and go to sleep, or the canary bird that persisted in playing with the cat 
scratched whiskers. A person with well-developed self-control will not permit himself to be influenced by the cynic or the pessimist, nor will he permit another person to do his thinking for him. A person with well-developed self-control will stimulate his imagination and his enthusiasm until they have produced action, but he will then control that action and not permit it to control him. A person with well-developed self-control will never, under any circumstances, slander another person or seek revenge for any cause whatsoever. A person with self-control will not hate those who do not agree with him, instead, he will endeavor to understand the reason for their disagreement, and profit by it. We come, now, to a form of lack of self-control which causes more grief than all other forms combined, it is the habit of forming opinions before studying the facts. We will not analyze this particular form in detail, in this lesson, for the reason that it is fully covered in Lesson 11, on accurate thought, but the subject of self-control, could not be covered without at least a passing reference to this common evil to which we are all more or less addicted. No one has any right to form an opinion that is, not based either upon that which he believes to be facts, or upon a reasonable hypothesis, yet, if you will observe yourself carefully, you will catch yourself forming opinions on nothing more substantial than your desire for a thing to be or not to be. Another grievous form of lack of self-control is the spending habit. I have reference, of course, to the habit of spending beyond one's needs. This habit has become so prevalent since the close of the World War that it is alarming. A well-known economist has prophesied that three more generations will transform the United States from the richest country in the world to the poorest if the children are not taught the savings habit, as a part of their training in both the schools and the homes. On every hand, we see people buying automobiles on the installment plan instead of buying homes. Within the last 15 years the automobile fad has become so popular that literally tens of thousands of people are mortgaging their futures to own cars. A prominent scientist, who has a keen sense of humor, has prophesied that not only will this habit grow lean bank accounts, but, if persisted in, it will eventually grow babies whose legs will have become transformed into wheels. This is a speed-mad, money-spending age in which we are living, and the uppermost thought in the minds of most of us is to live faster than our neighbors. Not long ago the general manager of a concern that employs 600 men and women became alarmed over the large number of his employees who were becoming involved with loan sharks, and decided to put an end to this evil. When he completed, to do much clear thinking a man must arrange for regular periods of solitude when he can concentrate and indulge his imagination without distraction Thomas A. Edison. His investigation, he found that only 9% of his employees had savings accounts, and of the other 91% who had no money ahead, 75% were in debt in one form or another, some of them being hopelessly involved financially. Of those who were in debt 210 owned automobiles, we are creatures of imitation. We find it hard to resist the temptation to do that which we see others doing. If our neighbor buys a Buick, we must imitate him and if we cannot scrape together enough to make the first payment on a Buick we must, at least, have a Ford. Meanwhile, we take no heed of the morrow. The old-fashioned rainy day nest egg has become obsolete. We live from day to day. We buy our coal by the pound in flour in five-pound sacks, thereby paying a third more for it than it ought to cost, because it is distributed in small quantities. Of course this warning does not apply to you. It is intended only for those who are binding themselves in the chains of poverty by spending beyond their earning capacity, and who have not yet heard that there are definite laws which must be observed by all who would attain success. The automobile is one of the modern wonders of the world, but it is more often a luxury than it is a necessity, and tens of thousands of people who are now stepping on the gas at a lively pace are going to see some dangerous skidding when their rainy days arrive. It requires considerable self-control to use the streetcars as a means of transportation when people all around us are driving automobiles, but all who exercise this self-control are practically sure to see the day when many who are now driving cars will be either riding the streetcars or walking. It was this modem tendency to spend the entire income which prompted Henry Ford to safeguard his employees with certain restrictions when he established his famous $5 a day minimum wage scale. Twenty years ago, if a boy wanted a wagon, he fashioned the wheels out of boards and had the pleasure of building it himself. Now, if a boy wants a wagon, 
he cries for it, and gets it. Lack of self-control is being developed in the oncoming generations by their parents who have become victims of the spending habit. Three generations ago, practically any boy could mend his own shoes with the family cobbling outfit. Today the boy takes his shoes to the corner shoe shop and pays $1.75 for heels and half soles, and this habit is by no means confined to the rich and well-to-do classes. I repeat, the spending habit is turning America into a nation of paupers. I am safe in assuming that you are struggling to attain success. For if you were not you would not be reading this course. Let me remind you, then, that a little savings account will attract many an opportunity to you that would not come your way without it. The size of the account is not so important as is the fact that you have established the savings habit, for this habit marks you as a person who exercises an important form of self-control. The modem tendency of those who work for a salary is to spend it all. If a man who receives $3,000 a year and manages to get along on it fairly well, receives an increase of $1,000 a year, does he continue to live on $3,000 and place the increased portion of his income in the savings bank? No, not unless he is one of the few who have developed the savings habit. Then, what does he do with this additional $1,000? He trades in the old automobile and buys a more expensive one, and at the end of the year he is poorer on a $4,000 income than he was the previous year on a $3,000 income. This is a modern, 20th century model American that I am describing, and you will be lucky if, upon close analysis, you do not find yourself to be one of this class. Somewhere between the miser who hoards every penny he gets his hands on, in an old sock, and the man who spends every cent he can earn or borrow, there is a happy medium. And if you enjoy life with reasonable assurance of average freedom and contentment, you must find this halfway point and adopt it as a part of your self-control program. Self-discipline is the most essential factor in the development of personal power, because it enables you to control your appetite and your tendency to spend more than you earn in your habit of striking back at those who offend you and the other destructive habits which cause you to dissipate your energies through non-productive effort that takes on forms too numerous to be cataloged in this lesson. Very early in my public career I was shocked when I learned how many people there are who devote most of their energies to tearing down that which the builders construct. By some queer turn of the wheel of fate one of these destroyers crossed my path by making it his business to try to destroy my reputation. Ask any wise man what he most desires and he will, more than likely, say more wisdom. At first, I was inclined to strike back at him, but as I sat at my typewriter late one night, a thought came to me which changed my entire attitude toward this man. Removing the sheet of paper that was in my typewriter, I inserted another one on which I stated this thought, in these words, you have a tremendous advantage over the man who does you an injury, you have it within your power to forgive him, while he has no such advantage over you. As I finished writing those lines, I made up my mind that I had come to the point at which I had to decide upon a policy that would serve as a guide concerning my attitude toward those who criticize my work or try to destroy my reputation. I reached this decision by reasoning something after this fashion, two courses of action were open to me. I could waste much of my time and energy in striking back at those who would try to destroy me, or I could devote this energy to furthering my life, work and let the result of that work serve as my sole answer to all who would criticize my efforts or question my motives. I decided upon the latter as being the better policy and adopted it. By their deeds you shall know them, if your deeds are constructive and you are at peace with yourself, in your own heart, you will not find it necessary to stop and explain your motives, for they will explain themselves. The world soon forgets its destroyers. It builds its monuments to and bestows its honors upon none but its builders. Keep this fact in mind and you will more easily reconcile yourself to the policy of refusing to waste your energies by striking back at those who offend you. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. Every person who amounts to anything in this world comes to the point, sooner or later, at which he is forced to settle this question of policy toward his enemies, and if you want proof that it pays to exercise sufficient self-control, 
to refrain from dissipating your vital energies by striking back then study the records of all who have risen to high stations in life and observe how carefully they curb this destructive habit. It is a well-known fact that no man ever reached a high station in life without opposition of a violent nature from jealous and envious enemies. The late President Warren G. Harding and ex-President Wilson and John H. Patterson of the National Cash Register Company and scores of others whom I could mention, were victims of this cruel tendency, of a certain type of depraved man, to destroy reputation. But these men wasted no time explaining or striking back at their enemies. They exercised self-control. I do not know but that these attacks on men who are in public life, cruel and unjust and untruthful as they often are, serve a good purpose. In my own case, I know that I made a discovery that was of great value to me, as a result of a series of bitter attacks which a contemporary journalist launched against me. I paid no attention to these attacks for four or five years, until finally they became so bold that I decided to override my policy and strike back at my antagonist. I sat down at my typewriter and began to write. In all of my experience as a writer I do not believe I ever assembled such a collection of biting adjectives as those which I used on this occasion. The more I wrote, the more angry I became until I had written all that I could think of on the subject. As the last line was finished, a strange feeling came over me. It was not a feeling of bitterness toward the men who had tried to injure me. It was a feeling of compassion, of sympathy, of forgiveness. I had unconsciously psychoanalyzed myself by releasing, over the keys of my typewriter, the repressed emotions of hate and resentment which I had been unintentionally gathering in my subconscious mind over a long period of years. Now, if I find myself becoming very angry, I sit down at my typewriter and write it out of my system, then throw away the manuscript, or file it away as an exhibit for my scrap book to which I can refer back in the years to come. After the evolutionary processes have carried me still higher in the realm of understanding, repressed emotions, especially, the emotion of hatred, resemble a bomb that has been constructed of high explosives, and unless they are handled with as much understanding of their nature as an expert would handle a bomb, they are as dangerous. A bomb may be rendered harmless by explosion in an open field, or by disintegration in a bath of the proper sort. Also, a feeling of anger or hatred may be rendered harmless by giving expression to it in a manner that harmonizes with the principle of psychoanalysis. Before you can achieve success in the higher and broader sense you must gain such thorough control over yourself that you will be a person of poise. While others may sidetrack your ambitions not a few times, remember that discouragement most frequently comes from within. You are the product of at least a million years of evolutionary change. For countless generations preceding you nature has been tempering and refining the materials that have gone into your makeup. Step by step, she has removed from the generations that have preceded you the animal instincts and baser passions until she has produced, in you, the finest specimen of animal that lives. She has endowed you, through this slow evolutionary process, with reason and poise and balance sufficient to enable you to control and do with yourself whatever you will. No other animal has ever been endowed with such self-control as you possess. You have been endowed with the power to use the most highly organized form of energy known to man, that of thought. It is not improbable that thought is the closest connecting link there is between the material, physical things of this world and the world of divinity. You have not only the power to think but, what is a thousand times more important still, you have the power to control your thoughts and direct them to do your bidding. We are coming, now, to the really important part of this lesson. Read slowly and meditatively. I approach this part of this lesson almost with fear and trembling, for it brings us face to face with a subject which but few men are qualified to discuss with reasonable intelligence. I repeat, you have the power to control your thoughts and make them do your bidding. Your brain may be likened to a dynamo, in this respect, that it generates or sets into motion the mysterious energy called thought, the stimuli that start your brain into action are of two sorts, one is auto-suggestion and the other is suggestion. You can select the material out of which your thinking is produced, and that is auto-suggestion or self-suggestion. You can permit others to select the material out of which your thinking is produced and that is suggestion. It is a humiliating fact that most thought is produced by the outside suggestions of others, and it is more humiliating, still, to have to admit that the majority of us accept this suggestion without either examining it or questioning its soundness. We read the daily papers as though every word were based upon fact. We are swayed by the gossip and idle chatter of others as though every word were true. Thought is the only thing over which you have absolute control, yet, 
Unless you are the proverbial exception, which is about one out of every 10,000, you permit other people to enter the sacred mansion of your mind in their deposit, through suggestion, their troubles and woes, adversities and falsehoods, just as though you did not have the power to close the door and keep them out, you have within your control the power to select the material that constitutes the dominating thoughts of your mind, and just as surely as you are reading these lines, those thoughts which dominate your mind will bring you success or failure, according to their nature, the fact that thought is the only thing over which you have absolute control is, within itself, of most profound significance, as it strongly suggests that thought is your nearest approach to divinity, on this earthly plane, this fact also carries another highly, impressive suggestion, namely, that thought is your most important tool, the one with which you may shape your worldly destiny according to your own liking. Surely, divine providence did not make thought the sole power over which you have absolute control without associating with that power potentialities which, if understood and developed, would stagger the imagination. Self-control is solely a matter of thought control. Please read the foregoing sentence aloud, read it thoughtfully and meditate over it before reading further, because it is, without doubt, the most important single sentence of this entire course. You are studying this course, presumably because you are earnestly seeking truth and understanding sufficient to enable you to attain some high station in life. You are searching for the magic key that will unlock the door to the source of power, and yet you have the key in your own hands, and you may make use of it the moment you learn to control your thoughts. Place in your own mind, through the principle of auto-suggestion, the positive, constructive thoughts which harmonize with your definite chief aim in life, and that mind that will transform those thoughts into physical reality and hand them back to you, as a finished product. This is thought control. When you deliberately choose the thoughts which dominate your mind and firmly refuse admittance to outside suggestion, you are exercising self-control in its highest and most efficient form. Man is the only living animal that can do this. How many millions of years nature has required in which to produce this animal no one knows, but every intelligent student of psychology knows that the dominating thoughts determine the actions and the nature of the animal. The process through which one may think accurately is a subject that has been reserved for Lesson 11 of this course. The point we wish clearly to establish in this lesson is that thought, whether accurate or inaccurate, is the most highly organized functioning power of your mind, and that you are but the sum total of your dominating or most prominent thoughts. If you would be a master salesman, whether of goods and wares or of personal services, you must exercise sufficient self-control to shut out all adverse arguments and suggestions. Most salesmen have so little self-control that they hear the prospective purchaser say no even before he says it. Not a few salesmen hear this fatal word no even before they come into the presence of their prospective purchaser. They have so little self-control that they actually suggest to themselves that their prospective purchaser will say no when asked to purchase their wares. How different is the man of self-control? He not only suggests to himself that his prospective purchaser will say yes, but if the desired yes is not forthcoming, he stays on the job until he breaks down the opposition and forces a yes, if his prospective purchaser says no, he does not hear it, if his prospective purchaser says no, a second, and a third, and a fourth time, he does not hear it, for he is a man of self-control and he permits no suggestions to reach his mind except those which he desires to influence him, the master salesman, whether he be engaged in selling merchandise, or personal services, or sermons, or public addresses, understands how to control his own thoughts, instead of being a person who accepts, with meek submission, the suggestions of others, he is a person who persuades others to accept his suggestions. By controlling himself and by placing only positive thoughts in his own mind, he thereby becomes a dominating personality, a master salesman. This, too, is self-control. A master salesman.s one who takes the offensive, and never the defensive side of an argument, if argument arises. Please read the foregoing sentence again. If you are a master salesman you know that it is necessary for you to keep your prospective purchaser on the defensive, and you also know that it will be fatal to your sale if you permit him to place you on the defensive and keep you there. 
you may, and of course you will at times, be placed in a position in which you will have to assume the defensive side of the conversation for a time, but it is your business to exercise such perfect poison self-control, that you will change places with your prospective purchaser without his noticing that you have done so, by placing him back on the defensive. This requires the most consummate skill in self-control. Most salesmen sweep this vital point aside by becoming angry and trying to scare the prospective purchaser into submission, but the master salesman remains calm and serene, and usually comes out the winner. People like to use their excess energy by chewing the rag, W.M. Wrigley, Jr., capitalized this human trait by giving them a stick of spearmint. The word salesman has reference to all people who try to persuade or convince others by logical argument or appeal to self-interest. We are all salesmen, or, at least, we should be, no matter what form of service we are rendering or what sort of goods we are offering. The ability to negotiate with other people without friction and argument is the outstanding quality of all successful people. Observe those nearest you and notice how few there are who understand this art of tactful negotiation. Observe, also, how successful are the few who understand this art, despite the fact that they may have less education than those with whom they negotiate. It is an act that can be cultivated. The art of successful negotiation grows out of patient and painstaking self-control. Notice how easily the successful salesman exercises self-control when he is handling a customer who is impatient. In his heart such a salesman may be boiling over, but you will see no evidence of it in his face or manner or words. He has acquired the art of tactful negotiation. A single frown of disapproval or a single word denoting impatience will often spoil a sale, and no one knows this better than the successful salesman. He makes it his business to control his feelings, and as a reward he sets his own salary mark and chooses his own position. To watch a person who has acquired the art of successful negotiation is a liberal education, within itself. Watch the public speaker who has acquired this art, notice the firmness of his step as he mounts the platform, observe the firmness of his voice as he begins to speak, study the expression on his face as he sweeps his audience with the mastery of his argument. He has learned how to negotiate without friction. Watch the physician who has acquired this art, as he walks into the sick room and greets his patient with a smile. His bearing, the tone of his voice, the look of assurance on his face, all mark him as one who has acquired the art of successful negotiation, and the patient begins to feel better the moment he enters the sick room. Watch the foreman of the works who has acquired this art, and observe how his very presence spurs his men to greater effort and inspires them with confidence and enthusiasm. Watch the lawyer who has acquired this art, and observe how he commands the respect and attention of the court, the jury and his fellow practitioners. There is something about the tone of his voice, the posture of his body, and the expression on his face which causes his opponent to suffer by comparison. He not only knows his case, but he convinces the court and the jury that he knows, and as his reward he wins his cases and claims big retaining fees. And all of this is predicated upon self-control. And self-control is the result of thought control. Deliberately place in your own mind the sort of thoughts that you desire there, and keep out of your mind those thoughts which others place there through suggestion, and you will become a person of self-control. This privilege of stimulating your mind with suggestions and thoughts of your own choosing is your prerogative power that divine providence gave you, and if you will exercise this holy right there is nothing within the bounds of reason that you cannot attain. Losing your temper, and with it your case, or your argument, or your sale, marks you as one who has not yet familiarized himself with the fundamentals upon which self-control is based, and the chief one of these fundamentals is the privilege of choosing the thoughts that dominate the mind. A student in one of my classes once asked how one went about controlling one's thoughts when in a state of intense anger, and I replied, in exactly the same way that you would change your manner and the tone of your voice if you were in a heated argument with a member of your family and heard the doorbell ring, warning you that company was about to visit you. You would control yourself because you would desire to do so, if you have ever been in a similar predicament, where you found it necessary to cover up your real feelings and change the expression on your face quickly. You know how easily it can be done, and you also know that it 
can be done because one wants to do it. Back of all achievement, back of all self-control, back of all thought control, is that magic something called desire. It is no misstatement of fact to say that you are limited only by the depth of your desires. When your desires are strong enough you will appear to possess superhuman powers to achieve. No one has ever explained this strange phenomenon of the mind, and perhaps no one ever will explain it, but if, if you doubt that it exists you have but to experiment and be convinced. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day, and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor. Thank you.